Our Bible reading today um, is Acts 15, 1 to 16, verse 5. Um, please open your Bibles. This is on page 896 in the Church Bible. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled to Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who hear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and not to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. 
So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the, by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where, and many, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in, in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because all the Jews who lived then because of all the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, As we continue our series on Acts, uh, please leave your Bibles open. Uh, Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are Father, Son, and Spirit, and you are one, and you have made us one by your love in Christ. So grant us the unity in the gospel, grant us wisdom in our ministry, that in all we do and say, we may honor and glorify you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, when um, uh, Prince Henrik died a few years ago in 2018, uh, his ashes were partly scattered uh, across Danish seas and partly interred in the private gardens of Fredensburg Palace. Uh, That might not seem very significant to uh, you and me, but it was for the people of Denmark. Uh, You see, for the last 600 or so years, Danish royals have been buried together in the Roskilde Cathedral. But Prince Henrik didn't want to be buried there. Now, you might be wondering why. Well, it's because he wasn't made king. Uh, You see, Prince Henrik was married to Marguerite, the Queen of Denmark. And they've been married for uh, some 50 years, but these 50 years weren't all smooth sailing. Prince Henrik was uh, holding a grudge uh, because Marguerite is a queen, but he wasn't king. He was only a prince. Uh, He feels that he should have been made king Uh, when she ascended to the throne in 1972, but instead he remained a prince. And so he feels that he's not recognised as the Queen's equal, and therefore he shouldn't be buried as the Queen's equal uh, in the same grave as the Queen. And so when he died, his ashes were scattered and interned, uh, breaking with tradition and taking his grudge all the way to the grave. Uh, Prince Henrik's conflict with the Queen of Denmark will now live on forever. Now I don't know you. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, uh, there was a conflict all the time. 
especially in the school playground, and it looks something like this in the picture. This guy's an idiot. No, he's the idiot. Am not. Are too. Can you relate to that growing up? Now, I don't know. How do you resolve conflict? Uh, at home? At work? Amongst friends? Well, in today's passage, we see conflict in the church. Uh, last week, we saw that the heart of mission is the preaching of the gospel. So as Paul and Barnabas travel from city to city to preach the gospel, some believed and were saved. But others rejected the message and even tried to stone them to death. What this tells us is that Paul and Barnabas were constantly in conflict. Some agreed with their message and became Christians, while others disagreed with their message and even tried to persecute them. But this is to be expected, isn't it? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is offensive. For those who are poor in spirit, it's good news. But for those who are proud and self-righteous, it's offensive. But what might be commonplace outside the church is unfortunately also commonplace within the church. That is, Paul and Barnabas not only encountered conflict outside the church, they also encountered conflict within the church. And in today's passage, we see two kinds of conflict. One concerns the gospel, the other wisdom. One concerns salvation, the other concerns personal preferences. So the first conflict we see in today's passage concerns the gospel. Now, you might uh, remember that Paul and Barnabas' home church was the church in Antioch. Uh, it was a big regional city, and the church was a well-established church. Uh, but then some people came from the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, as it were, so from Judea. And so these people came from the Jerusalem church, the mother church. They came to Antioch. Uh, and, and the mother church in in Jerusalem, in Antioch, is where the Apostle Peter is, the Apostle James, and many others. Now, these people who came from that church, who came to Antioch, weren't missionaries. They weren't even sent by the church in Jerusalem. But when they came to the church in Antioch, they came through the doors, they met with the people, they saw Paul and Barnabas and so forth, and they gave them the impression that they were official envoys. People of importance from the church in Jerusalem. And then they started teaching people in the church in Antioch another gospel. Uh, so they said that uh, men had to be circumcised in verse 1. Uh, Gentiles had to keep the law of Moses in verse 5. Uh, that is, Gentiles can't be saved by Jesus alone. Gentiles who wanted to be saved had to become essentially Jews first and also believe in Jesus. So it was Jesus plus Judaism. So verse 1 in chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. So you see, this was false teaching. And very clearly so. False teaching in the church is like a cancerous cell. It must be removed as soon and as early as possible. If you leave it too long, it might become malignant and impossible to remove. Imagine if... Pope uh, Leo X listened to Martin Luther's concerns about indulgences in the 1500s. How different would the Reformation have been and how different would the church be today? Uh, imagine if the openly gay bishop, Jean Robertson, was never ordained. How different would the Anglican Communion be today? And so what, that, that's what happened in the early church. There, there, there was an issue, a false teaching, a false gospel and so Paul and Barnabas and the church didn't let it fester. 
They dealt with it immediately. Not only does Paul and Barnabas debate them, but since they claim to be from the church in Jerusalem, and so they go to Jerusalem to deal with it head on. Well, you say you're from Jerusalem. You're saying that this teaching is from the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. Well, we'll go to Jerusalem and we'll, 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 we'll nut it out. We'll debate it. We'll, we'll hear from the Apostle Peter, Apostle James, and so forth. What, what is this teaching that you're giving? And so the church in Antioch sends Barnabas and Paul to the church in Jerusalem to have it dealt with amongst other people. And when they get there, the apostles, the elders, meet to consider the question, do Gentiles have to become Jews and believe in Jesus to be saved? Is it Jesus plus Judaism? And the answer is clearly no. Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Gentiles don't have to follow the law of Moses. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And now four reasons are given in this long passage in chapter 15, which is really important for us to consider. The first is uh, the first reason that's given is that the Holy Spirit that's been given to the Jews is the same Holy Spirit given to Gentiles. And so verse 7, have a look with me. So the Apostle Peter uh, gets up and addresses them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Just as he did to us, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. You see, in Acts chapter 10, when the believing Jews gathered and the Holy Spirit came, they received the Holy Spirit. And when in Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter preached to Cornelius and his family, to the Gentiles, and when they believed, they also received the same Holy Spirit. And so what Peter is saying here is that if God has given the Holy Spirit to the believing Jews and the same Holy Spirit to the Gentiles for the same act of believing, then salvation is by faith in Christ alone, not through obedience to the law of Moses. That's the first point. The second point is this, verse 10. The law never worked for the Jews. That is, the Jews were never saved by obedience to the law because they could never fulfill it. Verse 10, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. You see, Peter continues to say, we've received the same spirit, we're saved in the same manner. That is, we're not saved through obedience to the law because none of us can fulfill it. We're saved through grace in Jesus alone. The third reason is given in verse 12. Gentiles are already being saved without obedience to the law. It's already a done deal. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So not only does Peter articulate the gospel, Paul and Barnabas are saying, well, what Peter's preaching has actually happened in our ministry. As we've gone about preaching the gospel, Gentiles have been saved. They've received the Spirit through faith in Christ. And so they're verifying from experience the truth of the gospel. And so the fourth reason now is given. The prophets say that the Gentiles will be saved without the law. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, the apostle who wrote the letter of James, confirms what Peter, the apostle, said. Paul and Barnabas have said, 
not by speaking from experience, but now taking them to Scripture. Verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement to this. So here we have Peter, who has preached the gospel to Gentiles and has witnessed them receiving the same spirit. You have Paul and Barnabas who've gone on their missionary trip that we saw last week. Gentiles receiving the spirit by grace through faith in Christ alone, not through becoming Jews first. Now James, the apostle, the half-brother of Jesus, is saying even the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament says this. And he quotes from Amos chapter 9. And so what we have is the council in Jerusalem. And they make it very clear. Jews and Gentiles are saved in the same way, not by keeping the laws of Moses, but by faith in Christ alone. Now that's wonderful for us to hear, isn't it? To be reminded of again. Because if you're a bloke like me, we don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And if you like your bacon with your eggs for breakfast, you don't need to keep the Old Testament laws. You can go for your life. Just watch your heart. But go for it. We don't have to first become a Jew to become a Christian. We are saved in Christ alone. And, and I think we're probably all Gentiles here. We're non-Jews. We don't have to obey the Old Testament law. But that doesn't mean that we can stay the way we are, does it? You see, the gospel is about turning to Jesus by faith for our salvation. But when we turn to Jesus for salvation, what we must also do is turn away from our sins. And that's why James then goes on in verse 20, not to con contradict what he's just said, but by calling Gentiles to turn away from pagan idolatry. So verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, now why, why would he raise these few issues? They sound like Jewish laws, don't they? But actually, that's not the reason why he raises these specific things that they must turn away from. Because if you lived in the first century in Palestine and you uh, saw the pagan temples as you're walking the streets and buying your groceries from the market, what you'll see is pagan idolatry, pagan worship, pagan temple practices. And when you walk across the street and you walk past these pagan temples, you'll see all these things happening. You'll see people engaging in sexual immorality, temple idolatry food offered sacrifices, the drinking of blood, for example. To Maccabees, an apocryphal book says this, the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with harlots and had intercourse with women within the sacred, sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. Did you see what James is referring to? James is referring to pagan idolatry and he's saying, Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew, you have to turn to Jesus. But when you turn to Jesus, you have to stop idolatry. You have to stop participating in, in, uh, in idol sacrifices. 
and sexual morality that all happens amongst those um, uh, uh, precincts. And so, just as, for example, if someone becomes a Christian today and they've been all their lives involved in towers and sexual worship, when they turn to Jesus, we would also say to them, you have to stop doing that. That's part of repentance. And so that's what James is saying. James is saying pagans need to stop participating in pagan temple practices when they become a Christian. They don't have to become Jews. So the message of the Council in Jerusalem is clear. Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be saved, but neither can they remain in pagan idol worship to be saved. Turning to Jesus means turning away from all these other practices. So belief in Jesus and repentance from sin go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't believe in Jesus without turning away from sin, from turning away from other religions. And there's another reason James makes this command. We see this in verse 21. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So what's James making? What point is he making here? He's basically saying Jews have grown up in, in obedience to the law of Moses. They've refrained from eating pork. They've kept the Sabbath. And so what he's saying is Gentiles, just as the Jews shouldn't make you become Jews... Gentiles don't make the Jews become Gentiles. That is, if, if the Jews see you put some pork on your fork at the local barbie, they're going to be offended. And so be sensitive to them. Don't force them to eat the pork. They haven't eaten pork all their lives. It's okay for them not to eat pork. That's okay too. And so just as Jews can't impose the law of Moses onto Gentiles and stop them from eating pork, Gentiles shouldn't force the Jews to start eating pork because they have that freedom. So verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. So the, so the letter was sent back, the people were sent back to give the official message. The Council of Jerusalem has made a decision that there is no need for Gentiles to become Jews to be saved. So what started off as a serious issue, like a cancer in the church, a problem that could have destroyed the fellowship, divided the church, caused a rift between Jews and Gentiles, between the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem, between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, because of these so-called envoys from Jerusalem, resulted with great and deep encouragement and unity. Peace be between believing Jews and Gentiles, clarity on what the gospel is, and deep love for one another. So isn't that wonderful that this conflict actually resulted in such wonderful unity and encouragement? Now, if the first conflict in today's passage concerns the truth of the gospel, now the second conflict concerns wisdom. That is, the first conflict concerns the very fundamentals of Christianity. It answers the question, how can someone be saved? And, it, and, and this can't be compromised. We're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But as you and I know, not all conflicts we experience in the church are theologically non-negotiables like the truth of the gospel. Often our disagreements come down to our personal preferences or priorities. So uh, Fred might like hymns, uh, but Jane likes contemporary music. Fred might prefer it when a minister robes, uh, while Jane might rather see the minister dressed like a hipster. Uh, Fred might 
prioritize new toilets over new lights, but Jay might prefer lights over toilets. It probably wouldn't surprise you, but in almost in every situation, in every decision that a church makes, there's bound to be someone who'd be upset by it. And sometimes it gets to a point where Christians united in the gospel must still go their separate ways for the sake of the gospel. And that's what's happened in this passage with Paul and Barnabas. They've been on a mission trip together. They've defended the gospel together. They've traveled to Jerusalem together. Now they want to revisit the churches that we saw last week on their first missionary trip. They want to go back to these churches that they planted and, and see how they're going. Verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're going. Now, as far as we know, Paul and Barnabas are not only united in the gospel, they're, they're a great team. They've done some amazing ministries together for years. Uh, God worked powerfully through them to bring many people to Christ. And, and together they have addressed the issues of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that, which threatened the young church. As far as we know, they're a great team, they're great friends, and their partnership has caused the gospel to flourish and the churches to be planted and many come to saving faith. But now as they plan their next trip together, uh, something almost unthinkable, unexpected happens. They have a sharp disagreement. How, How could these two best buddies disagree so sharply, so seriously, a, a, a sharp disagreement similar to the sharp disagreement they had by those who came from Jerusalem and started preaching another gospel. Uh, verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. They parted company. The, the, the dream team splits up. The unthinkable happens. No one would have expected this. Not, not for them, not the entire church. So who do you think was right? Maybe Barnabas was right. After all, Christians should be forgiving. Maybe Mark did the wrong thing in Pamphylia. But hey, we all make mistakes. He should be forgiven. And even though he's deserted them in the past, surely he wouldn't desert us again on this mission trip. Or maybe Paul's right. After all, ministry is hard enough, let alone someone deserts you midway through a mission trip. Now, so if Mark can't be trusted to finish what he started, Paul doesn't want him on his team. The work of the gospel is too important, and so it's not worth the risk in taking Mark along this trip. So who do you think is right? Or maybe none of them were right. Both of them were wrong. Barnabas probably wanted to take Mark because they're cousins. And so he's just looking out for family. Uh, But poor baby is not right either. He's just too rigid, too unforgiving. He just needs to chillax a bit, have a coffee, drink some tea, give the poor guy a second chance. Well, the interesting thing is that what do you notice in the passage? Luke, the doctor who authored this, what does he say? Well, the interesting thing is that he says nothing. He doesn't actually give an assessment. He doesn't pass judgment. He doesn't say who's right and who's wrong. Instead, what does he say? What does he do? What does he record for us? 
He tells us in verse 39, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. And what happened? What did the church in Antioch do? Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. The dream team is split up. They take different parties, but they're equally blessed by the church. Commended by the believers. Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They went on different missions. You see, despite the split in the special gospel partnership they had, the great news is that two mission teams are now formed. Both teams are blessed by the church. The church commends both teams to the grace of the Lord. Even though Paul took the harder line not taking Mark, he's supported by the church. Even though Barnabas took Mark, he's still supported by the church. It's a, it's a great reminder, a great encouragement, isn't it? That they are united in the gospel, even if they go their separate ways. Even if they can't work together, they will be a blessing to each other because they stand united in the gospel. Their ministry approaches may be different, but they will still be blessed by the church because they stand united in the gospel. And if you've read through the letters of Paul, you'll know that Paul and Barnabas continue to do ministry together in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And you also know that Paul actually accepts Mark again on his ministry team. We see this in Colossians 4, Philippians 2, 2 Timothy 4. Who would have thought that that would actually happen at this time when they have this sharp disagreement and they go separate ways? There's love and there's unity in the gospel. You see, the point of this conflict, the second conflict we've read about between Paul and Barnabas is this. When there's unity in the gospel, there's freedom in ministry. When there's unity in the gospel, there's freedom in ministry. Freedom to disagree in how we do ministry, so long as we preach the gospel. Freedom in who we have on our team, so long as there's trust and unity and the blessing of the church. Freedom in how the church is structured, so long as there's accountability. The two conflicts we see in today's passage is instructive for us. For it reminds us that we must stand united in the gospel, but also have freedom to do ministry differently. The, the gospel is like my right hand, a, a closed fist, an unchangeable fist, a non-negotiable, something we must hold on to dearly and never compromise. We must never compromise the truth of the gospel, but instead we must keep teaching it, defending it, proclaiming it. But how we do ministry is like my left hand, an open palm, changeable, flexible, malleable, negotiable. And so we must seek and use godly wisdom to make ministry decisions. We use sanctified common sense. We consider the culture of the world around us. We brainstorm, we discuss we learn from experience, we consult mentors, we pray for God's help. We change and adapt. For the gospel won't change, but the way we preach the gospel and share the gospel and do ministry and do life together can. For example, Kylie used to attend a church where she was trained in ministry uh, in Sydney and it was focused on international students from countries, uh, from many countries, where music and charismatic churches would make music the big thing. 
And so you'd have a lot of these students coming from these big charismatic churches where music was just almost the centerpiece of their experience of church and of the gospel. And so this church that Kylie was trained in, that she was part of, they worked very, very hard of making sure that not only did they sing really gospel-centered music, but that the music was so good that even international students who really appreciated and enjoyed and really valued good quality music would be willing to come so that they might hear the gospel loud and clear. Or one of our friends is a minister of a high church where he would robe up, he would wear his clergy collar, where he would have all the high church you know, things that we don't have, like the candles and, and whatnot. And he does all that. He's an evangelical. He loves Jesus. He preaches the gospel, but he does all that so that those who value those things can still enjoy those things and hear the gospel preached week in, week out. The gospel never changes, but how we adapt so that people can hear the gospel can. And here in our church, we're now focused on our relationships, on healing, rebuilding, being encouraged by God's word and each other. That's where we are in the life of our church. And so we're focused not on programs, but on relationships, on holding the gospel precious in our hearts as we continue to love each other and hold out the word of truth to each other. So brothers and sisters, praise God that for all he has done for us in our Lord Jesus, he's brought us together in one body. He has saved us by his son. He has blessed us with each other. He's granted us unity in the gospel. And so I thank God for each and every one of you and look forward to growing in our love and faith and hope together as we seek to build the body of Christ. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.